All right, we are in the New Testament book of Acts. So if you've got a Bible or a device, you can turn or swipe there. Otherwise, you can follow along on the screen. But before we look at the verses we're looking at this morning, I just want to give a few introductory comments as to where we have been recently in this book. So this book began with a call for Jesus followers to wait. Something we all love, right? Waiting. But they were called to wait for Jesus to send the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit is part of what is known within Christianity as the Trinity. Okay? Trinity meaning three. So there's God the Father, there's God the Son who is Jesus, and then there's God the Holy Spirit as well. So the Holy Spirit is given to those who trust in Jesus to accomplish the same purposes that Jesus came to earth for. Jesus came to earth to seek and to save people who are separated from God by their sin. So Jesus came to point people to himself, essentially. He is the one who saves. And so this then also is why the Holy Spirit is given to us, to point us to Jesus. So in the book of Acts, there was this group of about 120 people And they waited for the Holy Spirit to come. And eventually this happened in a really powerful way. But one unique thing is that the Holy Spirit came to God's people, not in the temple where he had always come to people, but he came came to them while they were in a house. And this is really significant, right? Because God has always come and appeared, rested upon his people at the temple, right? But now it's happening in a house, which is signifying a significant change in how things are happening. Now, as many people saw and heard this demonstration of the Holy Spirit coming upon his people, and they were hearing this individual named Peter preaching about Jesus, what happened was there was about 3,000 people who trusted in Jesus. So this picture that we got was God's Spirit coming and resting on people, and then 3,000 people were being saved. And it, we talked last week, there's this really poignant picture that was given to us because there was this example in the Old Testament. When God comes to Moses, he comes to his people, Israel, and he calls them to the bottom of a mountain. And then Moses goes up this mountain and God gives him the Ten Commandments. And while Moses is up there, Israel rebels and they build, they, they think he's not coming back down, so they decide to build their own God for themselves. They build a golden calf. Really weird story, right? But they build a golden calf to worship. Well, Moses eventually comes down and brings judgment upon God's people because they disobeyed God. They weren't trusting him. But what ended up happening was about 3,000 people died because of that. So, so there's this picture. God gives the law. About 3,000 people died. God sends a spirit. About 3,000 people are saved. And this is what 2 Corinthians 3.6 talks about. It says, the law kills, but the spirit gives life. And so this is a much better thing. When God gives his spirit instead of his law. His spirit is overwhelming, overriding his law, and his law is becoming obsolete, is what Hebrews 8 tells us. Now today, 
we get a profound picture of what a Jesus-centered church looks like in its proper functioning. So last week we covered 28 verses, today just six. So let me read these verses for us and then we will unpack them. And they, being Jesus' followers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. God, thank you for these verses. Would you help us to see good news in these verses? It's, it's easy to read these and hear, feel all the things we ought to do, maybe. But would you help us to mine out the good news in these verses? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so quick summary here. So these are the first days of the Christian church, after it's been established. And what we're reading in these verses is that there were wonders and signs being done by the leaders in this church. It talked about the apostles, so that's basically talking about the leaders in this church were doing signs and wonders. And so there was this powerful demonstration going on, but part of the powerful demonstration that was going on in these verses is that these people were together. And the things that they were doing for one another as they were together. But all of that togetherness is revolving around one thing. And that one common thing that we're going to talk about in a moment is belief in Jesus. That is the orienting reality for the early church. Now, over the years of Center Church's existence, we have sought to ensure that our preaching is not focused on non-Christians, okay? So what I mean by this is it's really easy for churches to kind of build up these straw men and look out into culture and say, look at what all those people out there are doing wrong, and then to just stand in moral superiority over them and say, well, we're not them, so we're better. And we've tried to work hard here at Center Church to not do that. And I think the verses that we're looking at this morning really help us in this regard, because I think it's easy for us to read verses like this and say, oh, I can see how I do this thing that the church is supposed to do, and I know non-Christians who don't do this, and I can then feel better about myself, and, and we don't want to do that. What, what these verses do for us is that they preach to us, those of us who are inside the church, okay? And so, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, preaches to us. And, and my hope is that for those of us who are trusting Jesus, that these verses will land with some weightiness for us this morning. For those of us who are Center Church, that we would feel this in our hearts in a profound way. Okay, so I want to, make a be I want to begin by making a general observation about Jesus' church on these verses. What's really clear in these verses is that the early church of Jesus in Jerusalem was together. 
right? They were together. They were in each other's lives. They were sharing who they were and what they had. Sometimes people will say, I just wish we could go back to the first century Christianity, right? What they, whether they mean this or not, this is the picture of first century Christianity, what we get in these verses. Now, for us today in 21st century America, we've got to be really honest about how we have been influenced in the other direction, in a non-together way, what we call here in America as our rugged individualism. So there's a strong pull in us towards Jesus and me ways of doing Christianity. What I mean by that is I like Jesus, but not his church, right? I don't need his church, or I experience God the most when I'm in nature, Okay, so we've got to understand that our context, the way that we oftentimes would read the Bible, is through an individualistic lens. And American Christianity is very individualized. And I just want us to see how clearly this is not the picture of the church at its formation. The church at its formation was together. People needed each other. People depended on one another. They were Together, And what we're going to find as we go through the book of Acts is that there's these ongoing pictures of the church functioning in this way. This isn't the only picture that we will get of this. And what I've talked about uh, in a couple of weeks uh, past is this idea that in the book of Acts there's what we call description or prescription. And some people will say this, this is telling us what to do or this is just it's prescribing it or it's just describing a situation. We don't necessarily have to do it. But the church, being together, is continually seen throughout the book. And so there's repetition. And so as we read this, we should read this in, this is what Jesus' church is intended to be. How Jesus' church is intended to look. Even in an age where there's churches filled with tons of people, thousands of people, even for them, The intention is that they would be together, near one another. To press this further in a practical way, when someone trusts in Jesus, what we would say they are saved, what are they saved from? And the answer many of us would give is they are saved from their sin. And I would want to put the emphasis on their, T-H-E-I-R, their sin. So what I'm saying is here, they're saved from themselves. They're saved from their selfishness. If we are honest with ourselves, we are our biggest problem. It's not out there. It's in here. When we are gathered together corporately as a church, we are reminded of this. Because we are confronted with our sinful selves— We are confronted with our selfish preferences. And what we're going to be called to do over and over is to lay those selfish preferences down. So, if you don't like the way that I dress, if you don't don't like the length of Brett's hair, right? Like, we would say, get over yourself. And we say this often at Center Church. It's not about you. It's for you, but it's not about you you. It's about Jesus. So you can talk to me if you don't like the way that I dress, but 
probably don't give me a Macy's coupon to go change my wardrobe, which has happened in the previous church context, okay? So I've been there. I've done that. that. That's not how we function here at Center Church, okay? So gathering together forces us to be confronted with ourselves. So when we gather together here on a Sunday morning, there's two things that you need. You need to serve others, and you need to be served as well. Not one or the other. Now, maybe on a given Sunday morning, it's going to be one or the other, but we would say the totality of our experience at Center Church, we want both to hold each other in tension. It's not you just serving people, because then, then you get this Jesus complex, right? Like, oh, I just need to serve everyone else. No, you need to be served as well. And everyone needs to experience this. We need to serve and be served equally. Okay, let's dig into some of the details now that we find in these verses. And I want to begin by looking at the word devoted. Devoted. Because it talks in these verses about these people being devoted to four different things. Okay, so just definitionally, devoted is repeatedly giving oneself over to something or to someone. Okay, so there's this idea of commitment. And in the church, we would talk about this in terms of worship, right? If you're devoted to something, you're probably worshiping it in some capacity. Now, we are all devoted to things in certain ways, certain things in our lives, right? So this could be kids. Maybe we're really devoted to our kids, and their schooling, or their activities, or maybe we're really devoted to our hobbies, or to our work, or maybe we're really devoted to money, or building our 401k, or maybe we're really devoted to Jesus. What we're going to see really clearly in this picture of the early church is that they were devoted to Jesus. And what I want to encourage us to do is, if we are a Christian, if we consider ourselves a Christian, to let this, the picture we're getting here, let it confront us. Be willing to let it challenge us. Because the Holy Spirit wants to work in our hearts, all of our hearts. So these first Christians were devoted to four things. So let's touch on these four things. So first of all, they were devoted to the teaching of the leaders. Now, Last week, we got a really good picture of what the teaching of the leaders was. So Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, stood up, and he preached a sermon. And and he, he preached Jesus, and a bit more Jesus, and some more Jesus. He he was laser-focused on Jesus in his sermon. And this is what we want to be about at Center Church as well. We want to relentlessly preach Jesus. Jesus. Now, to be clear, the devotion doesn't come in the form of simply being aligned with a church that's preaching Jesus. The fact that these people were devoted to this teaching means that they were continually exposing themselves to the teaching about Jesus. So what this says then is no one in a church, even if we've been in a church for 60 years, 40 years, No one gets to the point where they don't need to hear Jesus preached. Every single one of us needs to hear 
Jesus preached over and over and over. And I love the picture we get here of this in these verses. So, okay, go, go back to the Ten Commandments, right? There was one of the Ten Commandments is remember the Sabbath, observe the Sabbath, okay? So, how often is that? Once a week, right? Oh, well, that, that seems like I can do that. Like, I put my hour in, I can check that box, right? That, that's all good and well. Here in Acts 2, we find them devoted to the teaching of Jesus in a manner described as day by day. So it's not one day with one hour. This is intended to encapsulate the whole of one's life. And this is why we hold up the gospel, which we would define as the good news of Jesus, as a core value here at Center Church. We believe that we must be gospel-centered, Jesus-focused in all of our lives. Not just when we feel like it, but all of the time. So, whatever we're doing. For me, when I'm coaching my kids basketball, I don't have to, like, take that card out of my pocket and I can just lose it on the refs. So when I get teed up, that means the referee gives me a technical because I've yelled at them or acted inappropriately. That, then I've got to confess that. I've got to deal with that, right? Like I've got to go right that wrong with the referee and the whole team and all the parents watching me and the girls or the boys that I'm coaching as well, right? So it's, it's all the time, every part of my life, even when we wake up before the coffee hits the veins, right? Like even in those moments as well, we, we want the gospel to be guiding us in everything that we're doing. So then, in order for that to happen, it's, imp- it's imperative that we are hearing about Jesus' grace and his power and his kindness on the regular. We need to be reminded of the promises that Jesus makes to us, but not just the promises that he makes, but the promises that he keeps as well. So when Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, what does that mean? What does that mean that Jesus says he will never leave us? Because that's a massive statement. It's true for Michael Pastor in the midst of his cancer journey. Jesus has not left him. In the midst of the darkest valleys in our own lives, that's true at those times as well. Jesus does not leave us. He doesn't abandon us. We also need to be reminded that we are sinners who are not saved by going to church. We are not saved by religious discipline. Our sins are forgiven by Jesus, what he has done. Salvation is by grace through faith, not by our works. This was the gospel primer we read at the beginning. Okay? We are not saved by our works. We are saved by Jesus' work on our behalf. It's what he has done for us. And so one of the primary places then that we hear about Jesus is through the Bible. And this is why we continually preach through books of the Bible here at Center Church. Why we want to create a love for the Bible in you as well. Now, this likely challenges most of us. A country 
the United States, known by many as a Christian nation, is severely biblically illiterate. And this is true in most churches as well. Severely biblically illiterate. And, and really all you need to do is walk into many churches and open up a Bible and see what Jesus says and compare it to things that are being preached. Or you can look out into our culture. The, the way that people want to marry Jesus to politics proves that most people don't have any idea what Jesus had to say about politics. Not that he had nothing to say or, or ideas espoused but by maybe like Christian nationalists now today. Like, like the things that many of them will say, they, they just don't connect with what Jesus said about his kingdom and what he's doing in this world. So Jesus' church is intended to be clear about who he is. Jesus' church is intended to be fixated on him, understanding who he is, what he's done. And so we want to be devoted in hearing the teaching about Jesus over and over. All right, secondly, the early church was devoted to fellowship, it says here. Another way we could describe this is as Christian community. So they were intentional, as we mentioned earlier, in being together, in spending time with one another. They valued this. It was important to them. It's not something that they just said, oh yeah, we care about that, but then never engaged in it. No, they were engaging it. Now, just to ensure we don't have pie-in-the-sky visions of what's happening here in Acts 2. In the same way that all of us are humans, these people were humans also. They were just as human as we are. And so what we can understand is that they were messy and selfish people as well. Just like us. To be devoted to any group of people means that we will show up when we don't want to. We will show up when conflict is present. We will show up when we are tired. It's not merely showing up when it's convenient for us or when it meets our needs. And we've got to understand these people weren't necessarily best friends of each other. We could look around here and say many of us aren't best friends, but church is much more like family than it is friends. The Bible continually uses familial language to talk about the church. And so it's great to have deep friendship at church. But, but we would not want to say that you should not be engaged in church if your besties aren't there. We would hope that some of those best friend relationships would occur as we surround our lives around the gospel that we would understand that orienting our lives around Jesus is stronger, better than orienting our lives around a hobby or something that we really enjoy. Not that those things are bad, but the gospel is much more sturdy. And, and here's the basis for this. Because I'm, I'm not trying to say this is easy. 
Okay? This is really hard. But the basis for this, the good news part of the gospel is you and I were Jesus' enemies. That's who we were with Jesus. And he loved us anyway. I, I know it's a lot easier for us to, to see it's hard to love somebody when we're looking at somebody else. Like, oh man, that person is so annoying, right? And that's hard to love them. But all we need to do is we just put ourselves in that person's spot as it pertains to Jesus. And that can give us a really good understanding of how this whole dynamic works itself out. And so this then is the basis. When we were annoying, when we were the rebel running away from Jesus, he doesn't just say, huh, okay, fine, whatever. No, he chases after us. And that's the beauty of the gospel. He chases his enemies down, not to beat them up, but to give his life, to be beat up for them. And so this is the basis of Christian community, of church community, is that Jesus has done this for us. Now, as we do this, Jesus' church has something in common then, and that commonality is belief in Jesus. So we read this earlier, all who believed were together. The thing that's bringing them together is Jesus, believing in him. And then what we see as we look at the Gospels, we see Jesus sacrificing his life, doing something that is ridiculous. But he's giving us a glimpse of a reality that is so good. He lays his life down so that we can be brought near to him, reconciled. All of the things that stand between us and God, he takes upon himself so that we can be brought near to him. So then, as we think about our own lives, right, and we all have conflict, right, that conflict can melt in the face of forgiveness. It's possible. If we're Christians, we've experienced that with God. Or, like those things, maybe there's things in our lives that we keep going back to. That after we go back to it, we're like, I wish I wouldn't go back to that thing. I regret going back to that thing. Those things that replace Jesus. In in the Christian world, at times we would call those things idols, right? Those are idols. But those things that we once held dear, in the face of the good news of Jesus, those things can die The importance of those things can be seen for what they are, much less than Jesus. Or maybe we can find ourselves, as we orient our lives around Jesus, maybe working less. If maybe that's a draw for some of us, to want to work really hard to be something. And maybe we can find ourselves working less so that we can have people over into our homes so that we can coach our kids' sports teams, maybe so we can study the Bible with other people. But as we look at Jesus, we orient our lives around him, we see that he is better than anyone or anything else. We can understand 
that profound things can happen in our lives as well, in our relationships, in our spheres of influence. And so we want to call people, Center Church, we want to call you to prioritize Jesus, that he would be center. It's the church name, right? And that's why. Jesus is the center. We say here at Center Church, we are casual about everything but Jesus. Everything, the way that we dress, the music that we listen to, the food that we eat, we're casual about everything, but we're not casual about Jesus. We are serious about Jesus. Okay, moving on. It also says that they were devoted to eating together, uh, breaking of bread, which also has in view observing the Lord's Supper, uh, as well as praying together. So prayer. Prayer is essentially an admission that we need help. That's what prayer is, an admission that we need help. And it's also a belief that there is a God that is both good and powerful. Not, not just good and not powerful, or not powerful, or it's not simply powerful and not good. It's both of those, okay? We've got to understand that the one that we're praying to is both good and powerful simultaneously. And this is the picture that we get of God in the Bible. Now, We've got to admit there's many mischaracterizations of Jesus. But if people actually see who Jesus is, how others have encountered him, how he revealed himself in the Bible, we find Jesus to be the only one who loves sacrificially while also defeating evil. He is powerful and he is good simultaneously. And so prayer is simply trust in him. Okay, It's not a religious duty. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is an expression of trust in him, expressing our need for him. Okay, also then, the breaking of bread, eating together. So when Christians began meeting together in the first century, there quickly became disparaging accusations about their meals and gatherings. So the New Testament book of Jude, it talks about those gatherings, it uses the phrase love feasts. They were love feasts, okay? And the reason they were called that is because there was so much love being expressed between these people who were part of this gathering. And and so at these feasts, there was also talk of eating Jesus' flesh and drinking Jesus' blood. Okay, not literally, symbolically. Okay, but you can guess what happens from people on the outside, right? They hear this, and they're going to run with that. That that's not a, merely a symbolic thing. That's a literal thing, right? And so from the outside, there were claims of incestuous behavior that were hurled against Jesus' church because of Jesus' love for them and then their love for one another, which, I mean, the church has, we have our issues, Okay? And there's a lot of messy sin in the church. But the, the accusations of incestuous behavior originally started because they were simply loving each other, caring for each other in non-sexual ways, in, in such an extravagant 
regard. But with this, okay, let's just admit that there's a weirdness to Christianity. Okay, when we talk about these things, that there is a bit of a weirdness to Christianity. And there's weirdness to what we're reading in these verses. Okay, so if someone, someone would come to me and be like, okay, so you, you actually believe in a God who was born of a virgin and throughout his life healed people and then he actually died but didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. And, and then he's going to come back and defeat all his enemies. And inside of myself, when someone would say that to me, I'd be like, yeah, but there's good reasons for this, but I probably don't even get to that. And I just kind of look at someone with a smile on my face, and yeah, pretty much, that's, that's what I believe as a Christian. And, and yeah, maybe it seems really weird, but there's a lot of really good justification for this. But... but there's a reality. As Christians, at times, we might seem a little crazy. And when we read what's happening in Acts 2, I think there's a little bit of crazy going on here. So we've got to wrestle with this. So if Christianity taught, be a good person. Now, many of you might say, well, that, that's what I was taught in the church, was to be a good person. If Christianity taught that, that would be a really palatable message. And that's why we hear that culturally. That's culturally acceptable. Be a good person. But that's not what Christianity is about. In my sermon last week, I said, the Holy Spirit doesn't come to make us good people. The Holy Spirit doesn't come to make us good people. Now, there will be goodness that flows out of our lives when we trust in Jesus. That can't help but happen. But that's not the primary reason that we're given the Holy Spirit is just so that we can be good people and then look at other people who are bad. That, that's not what it's about at all. God's intent was never to make a moral majority. L look at what's happening here in Acts 2. People are selling their possessions and belongings. So this is stuff that has value, right? This isn't stuff that someone would just throw in the box for goodwill, okay? This is stuff that has value. So people were giving up their valued possessions so that other people could be cared for, provided for. Now, we could go home this afternoon and we could watch a movie with this same premise. And our hearts might be warmed. And we might really be drawn into that story. That's a great sacrificial act, right? But if we're asked to do this, if you're asked to sell that thing that you care really deeply about, that maybe you saved up to buy, or you treasure so much, well, we might pump the brakes on this a little bit, and we might think that's a little bit crazy for God to ask me to do something like that, especially if we think the person in need mismanaged their money. If we think that they are undeserving in some way. Now, we're not getting this picture in Acts 2 because Jesus needs anything. Jesus isn't like a modern-day 
huckster. It, that we, we might turn on the TV and see some pastor on there, some imposter who's maybe trying to make a buck off of naive folks. Jesus owns it all already, okay? He doesn't need anything from us. But we've got to remember what this generosity stems from. Why would people take things that they really valued, sell them, and then give the proceeds to somebody else? What would cause somebody to do something like this? What we're reading in Acts 2, it began with Jesus dying for his enemies. It began with Jesus doing something for undeserving people. So when we would look at, at someone and say, well, I'm not going to sell this thing and give people this money because they've already shown that they're irresponsible with money. They're undeserving of it. That's what Jesus has done for us. We mismanaged the gifts he gave to us. We wasted so much of what was provided to us. And yet, Jesus doesn't hold that over us. Now, now maybe we've had a church experience where someone did hold it over us and said, well, don't you remember, Jesus did this thing for you, now you've got to do all these things for him to pay him back. That's not what Christianity is. Not at all. No. Jesus saves you, period. Not with all these contingencies that you do all these other good things. Now, if you're saved by Jesus, you understand this, you will want to. But he doesn't save you to put this yoke on you and say, now there's all these things you need to do just to keep me happy as your God. That is not what Christianity is. What Jesus has done for us is crazy good. Weird, but crazy good for us. That he would die, die for us because of our mistreatment of him, our rebellion against him. So what we're seeing in these verses, what's intended to be a mark of Jesus' church in a weird and good way, what will come out of our lives when we're run over by Jesus' grace is a generosity that boggles the mind. And I want for us, Center Church, to have such a transcendent experience of Jesus, such a deep understanding of his love that we want to be engaged with Jesus' church in this way. Not that we have to, not that we're obligated to be engaged in this way, but that we want to, because we understand what he's done for us. Jesus' desire for us is that we would hold so loosely to the possessions that we own, that we are willing to give them up so that others might be cared for. Christians are not stingy. Christians are not stingy. How can we claim to possess the best news in the world, to have our greatest problem, which is sin, resolved, to be saved from hell, from death, to be filled with love, joy, peace, and patience, and yet be reticent to share our snowblower, or whatever tool we think is really valuable, or whatever hobby we have, and still struggle to give our time. I mean, if I can't joyously share my favorite salsa with others, 
What is my hope in? What is my hope in? I mean, chips and salsa is like my favorite snack, but salsa's not that good. It's not that sturdy, but Jesus is. So what we're seeing here is people who have been wrecked by grace. These are not people who figured out a formula. Okay, if I act really committed to Jesus and do some good deeds, then God will reward me with contentment, with whatever I want. That's not what's happening. That's not what's happening here at all. What we've got to understand, maybe we've never felt the weight of our own sin. We've never been confronted with the fact that, man, my sin is as bad as Fill in the blank. Whoever you think is the worst sinner in the world, my sin is as bad as that. And so when we think about what we've been forgiven, our sin being forgiven, maybe it's not that big of a deal because we think our sin is not that bad. But this is the formula. If we're forgiven little, we're going to feel loved little by Jesus. If we've been forgiven much, and the intent is that you would feel, understand, know that you are forgiven everything, everything when you trust in Jesus. Well, then you're forgiven much. And then you'll know that you are loved much. The reason these people have sheer joy, awe, glad, generous hearts, praising God are the phrases that we get next to is because they've been confronted with the truth of who Jesus is. They were his enemies, and they are now his friends. They've been confronted with the fact that the tomb is empty. It actually is. Jesus actually walked out of it. Though he was dead, he walked out of the tomb. And so this is, them doing these things in Acts 2 is not manipulation. It's not coercion. It's not obligation. They want to. They can't help it because they've been changed by Jesus, by the good news of Jesus. And Jesus' desire for all of us, as we trust in him, is for our good. It's for our joy. Jesus doesn't want to make you a curmudgeon. He wants to fill you with joy. Okay, we end our sermons here at Center Church with what we call gospel application. So a normal church service, you might get what's called application. Here's three things you can do to make you a good Christian so that God will be happy with you. That is not what we do, okay? Because what we're doing then is we're saying, here, here's a yoke for you to go out of here with. Try and make God happy. That's not Christianity. We call it gospel application because it's good news application. It's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has done for us. So we want us leaving here figuratively speaking, like skipping out of here because we're reminded this is who Jesus is. This is what Christian preaching is intended to do, to remind us of who Jesus is. So, one point of gospel application. This passage is all about Jesus. All about Jesus. It's really easy to read a section like this and focus in on what I should do. I heard someone say, this is not a what-to-do passage but a what-is-true passage. This is not a what-to-do passage, but a what-is-true passage. Whether we consider ourselves a non-Christian, a nominal Christian, an on-fire Christian, or somewhere in between, Jesus invites all of us into something 
deeper. There is a joy and a freedom in trusting Jesus. And when I say trusting, I'm I'm not saying an intellectual assent that Jesus exists. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying giving oneself over to Jesus. Saying, Jesus, you are king. You are in control. You are enough. You are sufficient. Believing he is who he revealed himself to be. He's good. He is powerful. He is for us. He is over everything in this world. And so this invitation is for all of us. An invitation into Jesus. An invitation into his church. Out of rugged individualism and into his church.